As many of us are currently confined at home in many places of the world, and while we keep in our minds and in our hearts those who have no choice but to be at risk from the ongoing worldwide pandemic because they're doctors, nurses, workers, homeless, incarcerated, or in any other precarious situation, we wanted to provide you with a daily podcast to use this time to reflect and organize. The concept is very simple. Every day, we ask one person the same question. What is for you a moment of true decolonization? The answer can be a historical moment or something they witnessed, something heroic and grandiose or rather discreet and mundane, a durable blow to the structures of colonialism or a short instant of liberation. We thank you very much for listening and wish you and your loved ones the very best wherever you are. Hello everyone, today is the 10th episode of A Moment of True Decolonization, our daily podcast uh, during the confinement, and today our guest is uh, Miriam Hilawi Abraham, who is a multidisciplinary designer who hails from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Her work advocates for social justice through Afrofuturism and intersectional feminism by creating playful dialogue, immersive experiences, mining artifacts from the future and constructing alternative realities. And uh, she was um, she was one of the one of our contributors on the, our 24th issue Futurism uh, as two people already, Sophia Hazeb and Kite. Uh, as part of this series, so it's it's great to have that thread. <laughs> uh, hello, Miriam. Hi, Leopold. How are you? Good. How are you? <laughs> uh, <You're>, good. <laughs> yeah, you're in super quarantine yourself, even more than most people. Yeah. Aren't you? <laughs> I, I call it hotel quarantine. My cousin calls it um, prison lux. Um, <laughs> It's, it's it's been okay. <laughs> okay, I mean maybe just to explain, you're you're basically in a hotel in Addis uh, after coming back from the U.S. and you're being placed in current in quarantine for uh, two weeks. Like, Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, like like every day, I come back with the same question. Could you describe what is the moment of true decolonization you wanted to talk about? Yeah. So. My time in quarantine has given me a lot of time to think about this question. Um, and I wanted to talk about something that is, uh, is personally ins- impactful to me. As an Ethiopian woman growing up um, in, in, in Addis Ababa, the conversation around independence and national pride was always like thick in the air. Um, Ethiopians take great pride in our victory and our very symbolic victory over Italian colonial forces, which, and rightfully so. Um, and the Battle of Adwa um, was quite a humiliate, humiliating defeat for um, the Italian civilization mission. Um, and it took place in March 1st, 1896. And the Second Italo- Italo-Ethiopian War against fascist Italy was a long-standing war um, and a, a long-lasting occupation that lasted from 1936 to 41. Um, it involved a huge massacre and the removal of some of our artifacts um, including a giant obelisk, which was carried off to Rome, um, and only returned about like I think when I was seven or something. Um, so that is a huge moment in our history, but also quite um, quite symbolic to Black and African people all over the world. Um, and as 
as much as I wish to draw pride from it, I experience a lot of tension around it. Um, because for me, um, decoloniz decolonization is not solely a, an act of war or an aesthetic, and it's not static, it's an ongoing action that must continue to withstand the perpetual attacks from colonial and post-colonial agents because they will never stop. And um, for me, decolonization is also very much tied with uh, breaking free from all forms of social subjugation and, um, and injustices. It has to be intersectional and therefore the act seems incomplete without the inclusion of women, um, LGBTQI and all so socioeconomic groups um, and classes and indigenous communities. Um, and that is why, to me, Thomas Sankara remains one of the most iconic figures of decolonization and pan-Africanism as he centered women's liberation in his movement. But so the conversation in Ethiopia doesn't kind of shift beyond we won and we drove them out and we're God's chosen people. Um, it always evokes warped memories of a glorious past um, with powerful kings, um, with this like trouble, troubling sense of exceptionality over other Africans, making it difficult to, to experience solidarity, to experience true Pan-Africanism, um, even though the headquarters is for the African Union is in Addis Ababa itself. And I believe that it's kind of also led to a lot of complacency within our people in terms of the racism we experience and the colonialism that still exists today in the form of um, neoliberal trade, st stolen artifacts, immigration, foreign aid, and white saviors. It's also eroded a sense of accountability for our emperors and our, um, our politicians and governors who should, um, who should face responsibility for their participation in civil violence, slavery, um, divisiveness, and betrayals of our actual neighbors. But um, for me, it's particularly like, it's almost personal because I've seen it used to reinforce our own brand of patriarchy um, and this control over women and queer communities. It sets up this binary between us Ethiopian as good and pure, um, and the West as corrupt and godless. And when conversations around women's bodies and independence arise in public in the public sphere, sphere, um, that along with Abrahamic religions like Christianity and Islam are always evoked to shift power and ownership away from us. And it's become and it's always kind of this whole thing of like we must be virtuous, virginal, submissive. Um, beautiful and sharp but never loud and never proud of our looks to the point of arrogance and this complex eroticization and exoticism over our bodies um, has been an ongoing trope in so many ways for Ethiopians and generally for um, women from the Horn of Africa as we've been represented in, in global uh, media through the cast through the white male gaze as a sort of like um, this is like a quote from um, the legend of Cassiopeia which is a Greek myth about an Ethiopian queen, um, and it said she was beautiful despite her blackness. And this sort of like concept of this exotic other is constructed around this whole thing of being innocent and still gazing into this camera lens of this and being unaware of this dark lust on the other end, this lust and power and ownership over us. Um, and so for me, decolonization also involves this um, destruction or disruption over the concept of exotic other, um, particularly towards women. And so for me now, um, the moment, uh, oop, I think that was my computer, the moment of uh, true decolonization took place on July 24th, 
1984 in photographer Robert Maplethorpe's studio in New York. The otherworldly goddess that is Grace Jones had just released her album Slave to the Rhythm. Um, and she'd met up with um, contemporary art figures and pop culture figures, Maplethorpe, Keith Haring, and Andy Warhol to style her latest music video, um, Vamp, and um, I think it's called I'm Perfect for You. Um, and Jones, and, and the photographs that emerged from this are the most like insanely beautiful and powerful images, let alone the video itself. So in these images, um, Jones stands tall and naked facing the camera, um, laughing, being cheeky, posing, while Herring kneels beside her and diligently paints patterns in white all over her naked body. And although there's very little written about this, uh, what I've found written about it is mostly like from the male perspective, where they think she's being treated as a canvas or this like sexy erotic figure. But to me, it's more of this like reclamation of and, and subversion of the concept of the exotic other, especially for her as a dark-skinned woman. Um, and she's not merely a canvas for Herring. In fact, it's as if she's commissioned him. Um, she's, she's also not a subject for Maplethorpe's camera. Um, in fact, these men are her tools for her own self-expression and manifestation of her sex and power and identity. Um, and this also takes me back to John Berger's Ways, ways of Seeing, where he quotes, um, you painted a naked woman because you enjoyed looking at her, put a mirror in her hand, and you called the painting vanity, thus morally condemning the woman whose nakedness you had depicted for your own pleasure. And so this idea of taking part in our own um, image and being active is always seen as taboo. Um, and I'd seen Grace Jones. I, I didn't grow up listening to her music. I think I was a bit too young. But I think the first time I saw her was in Boomerang. Um, with Eddie Murphy, where she like shouts, pussy, pussy, in the middle of a restaurant. Um, and she's this like wild figure. <laughs> um, and when I saw these images, I don't even know, I don't even remember when I saw them, but they were burned to the back of my mind. And they kind of came forth um, when I was doing my thesis last year, and a professor called me an exotic other in, um, in my college in San Francisco. And I had to like run and pull these images back. And I began, I began writing a manifesto called um, the Exotic Other Manifesto um, to draw power and subjectivity from this like misnomer um, and to, to draw solidarity through summoning these sort of banished spirits or these um, marginalized like concepts, these things that are outside of the frame of the normal. Um, and this form of expression that Jones vanguarded, I would like to see she vanguarded, but I'm not sure. Um, where the artist is not only the subject, but also the agent and the narrative itself um, has crystallized into this like powerful art form, particularly among Africans, African-Americans and within the queer community as well. And it's become this sort of impactful method that even I've also tried to take part in with my friends and my collaborators of not only like expressing your own identity um, and power, but also using it as a framework to assert ourselves into our own histories and and re-enter our own narratives and also project ourselves into the future. So kind of denying to be silenced or also denying to be banished into mythology and taboo. Um, and there's a power in also co-opting myth and taboo and rewriting it as, as your own. Um, and so I've seen this among great artists like Billy Porter, Janelle Monet, and the African artists Aida Mununa, um, Lakin Ogunbano, and Petite Noir, and 
Rara Nembard, um, and many more. Um, so yeah, this is definitely my favorite moment. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much, Miriam. And uh, uh, I think for for uh, people, listeners who don't know yet your work, I think they, it gives them also a great um, a great entry that they and they can go either see what you what we published in the Phenomenalist or or better even uh, go on your website where many of it is uh, is exposed is uh, exhibited sorry um uh, great thanks thanks again and uh, take good care during this second week of uh, hyper quarantine thank you <laughs> thank you thank you for virtually visiting me during quarantine <laughs> bye bye that's all for today Find us tomorrow again for a new episode as part of this daily podcast series. And if you're a subscriber to The Phenomenalist, remember that you have access to every single article we published in the past in their online version on our website. Thank you very much and take care.